on this week in sales, we're going to be taking a look at whether it's finally the end of the line for B2B sales calls. We'll be looking at a recent The State of Deals report that suggests that B2B decision making is happening faster than ever before. A bit weird, right in the middle of a global pandemic. And we'll uncover how sales enablement works in a socially distant world and a whole lot more and unfortunately for you guys it's just me will barron on this week in sales this week our, our friend our co-host victor antonio is currently in the middle of a, a big storm the internet is down i hope him and his family and the dog is safe um so yeah you're gonna have to put up with me running through some of the news this weekend victor will hopefully be back next week to add his insights to all of this so we'll start with this report from mckenzie who says the most notable sign that digital sales have come of age is the comfort b2b buyers display in making large purchases and reorders online and this is seemingly a, a new a phase of b2b selling this hasn't been buyers have not been comfortable of making these purchases in the past now according to mckinsey there was this prevailing wisdom that e-commerce was mainly for smaller ticket items i don't know like well in the commercial world or the b2c world it's buying shampoo I think it's brand new, right, for companies like Tesla, for example, to allow you to spend fifty, a hundred thousand dollars on a, a car online. But that's the prevailing wisdom from uh, the B two C world, but in the B two B world, the prevailing wisdom was it's for smaller ticket items and things that you just need quick. You don't care that you're paying a premium on this product or service. You just need it now, and so you don't want to deal with salespeople. You don't want to have to go through customer service. You just want to get the deal done and the item in hand. So people typically, perhaps, were. Uh, fine to have a lower level of service because it's been bought online or pay perhaps a premium for it. But that has all changed. McKinsey again say, notably, 70% of B2B decision makers are now open to making uh, fully self-serve or remote purchases purchases online of an excess of $50,000. So that's probably catching a whole chunk of, of salespeople listening to this episode of This Week in Sales. And it's most of my deals are below $50,000 with the training that we do and the sponsorships on the podcast and all that side of things. So I would be in that bracket. So that's 70% of B2B decision makers would make a purchase online of a value up to $50,000. 27% would spend more than half a million dollars. So that's where... All of this, I feel, has really changed forever. If somebody in, say, a CMO is willing to buy marketing software that's maybe not 50 or half a million dollars in one go, but they're willing to, over the course of two or three years, it's going to cost that, and they're willing to do that online without speaking to a salesperson, sales has changed. And this report, I think, uh, kind of gives some evidence to what me and Victor have been talking about for the last month or so. The report also says the amount of revenue generated by video-related interactions has jumped to 69% since April of this year. And 43% of all B2B revenue comes from video engagements. Now, this is not news to me. It's probably not news to you if you've been listening to the show. It's probably not news to you if you're watching this on YouTube either. It might be news to you if you only consume all this content on audio, but video is where it's at. We all want to engage. There's so many levels of communication, extra levels of communication that happen for a video call versus a telephone. And look, telephone, just voiced on voice conversations. Uh, you know, it's different for a podcast because you're consuming this probably whilst you're inputting data into HubSpot or Salesforce. So you're going for a run or you're walking your dog. You're consuming this as an addition to another task that you're doing. But a two-way conversation, a phone call, 
The only reason that they didn't start off being video calls is bandwidth and technology. Human beings, we would always preferred to have had a video call if it was available. And clearly it wasn't available 100 years ago and it now is ubiquitous and is available now. So there's so many layers of communication that happen on a video call that we're unable to uh, see or, or communicate or, or to take in over a voice call. That this, is, this shouldn't be surprising to anyone. But the question that I've got, a rhetorical question, because Victor isn't here for me to throw it at him and, and put some pressure on him to uh, <laughs> to pull my rants out of the, the ditch here and, and to make it uh, palatable for you guys. My question is that if 70% of B2B decision makers will spend up to $50,000 online, what's holding back the final 30% of decision makers? Because it could just be very naturally organic and, and rightfully so that these individuals, like me selling medical devices back in the day, the surgeon wanted to have their hands on the device that they're going to be physically put inside a patient. And until they've checked the ergonomics that the massive hands, small hands, the angle that they prefer, the type of procedure, the way that the patient's like lying or prone or whatever in the procedure itself, until they've managed to check all that, maybe they are not comfortable in buying. And maybe that wraps up that final 30%. Now, I'm sure that 30% will reduce. I'm sure some of those purchases will eventually be, and we're going to talk about this later in This Week in Sales, maybe there's virtual ways to show off some products or services or features or benefits that people are holding people back from buying online now. But if you're selling in an old school way of knocking on doors, you are knackered. Um, again, I'm not speaking for Victor here. This is totally my own opinion, but this is just... Data after data after data that you need to be selling online. You need to be. You need to use a internet-based selling methodology. Okay. So next up, PandaDoc release the State of Deals 2020 Summer Edition. Although it's not summer. It's I don't know about here. I can see the rain out the window. It's it's absolutely thrown it down now. And I think there's in the middle of a storm. So I don't know if we've we've caught onto this late or what. But PandaDoc, a leading all-in-one document automation software, released the State of Deals 2020 Summer Edition. Now, what did they find? They found that well, post-pandemic buyers are making decisions faster than ever before. And the data shows that despite the expectation for slower sales as a result of the pandemic, the completion rate on deals from April to June actually jumped up. And the volume of deals initially decreased early on in the pandemic, but then rebounded up and we're now up by over 38% of June. Now, I'm going to get, I'm going to, this is just one source. They could just have a certain specific type of customers that are doing well in this pandemic. Uh, depending on the size of the organization, maybe they cater to and sell to um, small to medium sized businesses or the enterprise. So all of this data is massively skewed, but it gives us some indications, right? So a couple of thoughts on this. What's causing decisions to be sped up? Is it that the market is doing really well. There's tons of money out there. All the budgets that have been held back have now been released and it's a great time to be a salesperson. Or is it that companies are struggling, they they need solutions, they need to take action quick, otherwise they're not going to be able to make payroll and, and budgets are being flung out there just to try and get the company out of the, the proverbial shit that they might be in with the state of the economy that we're living through right now. I don't know. This report doesn't, doesn't help us um, make these decisions or, or, or pull kind of pull clear conclusions out of it. 
And of course, more deals doesn't necessarily mean the same amount of revenue. Perhaps salespeople, perhaps you guys are doing an incredible job of just getting anything through and doing deals of five grand, 10 grand, rather than the 50 grand deal that you're hoping for, which may have took longer, you're, you're happy just to squeeze out a few smaller ones and just take up whatever budget is available. Again, we can uh, speculate on some of this, but without a, a wider source, which doesn't exist other than Gartner reports and Forrester reports and things like that, uh, it's difficult to pull data from a smaller source like this. Now, next up, I thought this one was interesting. Accenture completes acquisition of a B2B sales firm called N3. So for anyone who isn't familiar, Accenture is a multinational professional services company. They do all the kind of stuff that you as a salesperson really don't care about. <laughs> all kinds of consulting, HR, uh, HR consulting, all that kind of thing, accounting, basically, all that kind of uh, stuff that happens in the background that when you close a deal and you think you've saved the organization, all the other stuff happens. That's what they're involved with. But the important thing here, they've got a revenue or reported revenue of over $40 billion. So big, important company, right? Now, N3, who's been acquired, is an Atlanta, I'm quoting here, an Atlanta-based B2B sales firm that combines specialized talent with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Every buzzword you could possibly imagine, right? And they enable smarter, more efficient sales interactions. And a quote from Manish Sharma, Group Chief Executive of Accenture Operations, says, Bringing N3 into Accenture family will better enable us to help companies influence purchasing decisions at critical stages. So what they're doing here, right, they are pulling in lots of data to enable their sales teams, their marketing teams to do a better job at selling. And this is clearly the future. This will trickle down from companies who can acquire other organizations to put a, a proprietary system in place. This will trickle down and uh, there'll be startups that'll be throwing this information at you as well. And it mentions very specifically here, it helps purchasing decisions at critical stages of the sales or buying process. And that's where we need this Intel, right? We don't need Intel that Barry is having a fantastic day when you're just about to cold call him. Fine, you, you, you're capable of pulling that information out yourself, aren't you? You don't need uh, a whole host of servers doing machine learning and, and AI algorithms to help you with that. But what you might need help with is the fact that Barry's ghosted you. He hasn't heard back. You haven't heard back from him for, for two weeks now and you've gone on his LinkedIn profile and he's still posting on there. These are the, the critical points of the sales process when the, the quote has been sent or when you're waiting to receive the purchase order. These are the points where deals can seemingly go from 100%, you tell your sales manager, 100%, this is definitely going to happen, to it falls apart in an absolute instant. You don't hear back and you've no idea what's going on. So this is where I believe a lot of this data can come in of the data can reference, uh, for example, press releases of purchases, of deals, of acquisitions, of partnerships that might have scuppered your own deal if you're doing deals of that size. It could pull in data from hires and fires and, and LinkedIn profile data and people giving congratulations on different deals being done and, and things of that nature as well. And you can, if you can pull in enough data, if you can pull in enough um, context during these different parts of the sales process that you'd never be able to do yourself. Now, if it was a massive, if you were doing a, a merger acquisition, a deal of that kind of size, you probably got a group of analysts or consultants working with you to do some of this background digging and to stay on top of it, to make sure that you've got the pulse of the the deal on, on track and you're, you're on top of everything. But other than that, 
we're going to have to rely on machine learning and AI. Now, with that said, last week we uh, posed the question, should sales technology companies, should sales enablement companies, people who are selling to salespeople essentially, should they be acquiring training and, and pushing out essentially sales training and sales content into the marketplace to add an extra layer of value to the the customers, the customers' businesses. Now, I spoke to, what's the name? It was Remain Anonymous, which is fine, but I spoke to a, a CEO, uh, the you know the, the head honcho of a really cool sales technology company. And he was quite open and frank with his comments. I'm going to, I'll quote some of them here. And he said, I'm allowed to share I guess, the, the, the gist of things of our conversation, as long as you don't call him out on things. Now, he said the reason, the main reason why these sales and input companies, sales software companies, don't invest in a, a sales training element to their product is that, and I'm going to quote him here, it's a scary proposition for most sales technology startups because if you include training or even, quote unquote, best practices within your software, well, then your software becomes liable your software becomes liable for the promises that you are making to the end user. Now, if you, I won't pick on any company here, but say like you've got a, a sales automation, uh, an email automation system that you're selling, a product, right? Well, if you say, well, we, we on average, we give you a 10x return on your investment of, of, uh, of product spend with us uh, via increased revenue on your side when you use our software. Now, if you just make that, claim, just throw it out there, and the end user, the buyer, uses your software and they don't get those kind of returns from it, then you can say, well, oh, well, you're just not trained. You've not used it appropriately. You need better sales training. Here's some recommendations and please keep using our software because we can see, you know, and you, you, could, you could keep selling someone, you could upsell someone on the back of the data that you have of emails getting opened and all that side of things. But if you included very specific training and then the end user used, followed your system and used everything that you'd shared with them and still didn't have results, then you've got nowhere to run. And so that's when litigation comes in. That's when refunds come in. And so that's why, according to this anonymous CEO, uh, you are unlikely to see companies acquiring sales training organizations for that uh, very reason. But he did say you will find... So Andy Paul is uh, a sales... Uh, sales trainer, sales expert. I've had him on the Salesman podcast a bunch of times. He has his own sales podcast as well. Nice guy. He said, the CEO that I spoke to said that there's likely to be more Andy Paul, he called it an Andy Paul style hire. So it would be a sales trainer who creates content on his own or her own, getting acquired by these companies and then becoming an advocate of the company that they are now employed by. And the content that they were producing on their own now just goes into the larger organization's marketing funnel. So they're acting more as a tool to get attention and marketing as opposed to a, a trainer that's helping customers. And I don't know about Andy Paul specifically here, but this is just an example that was given to me. Um, so the content and the individual as an advocate of the company, they're creating marketing content as opposed to training people on how to use the software and actually improve their sales results. So that was the the, the the yin and yang that was given to me by the CEO. They don't want to get sued. They don't, they don't want that kind of hassle. Even if the product's great, you're just opening up litigation for, for no reason, essentially. And people do want to acquire experts in their field. They do want to acquire a marketing collateral and material. So hopefully that wraps up that question that I posed to Victor last week. That gives us 
somewhat of a, an objective opinion on things from someone who's in that space, who has the, the CEO, definitely has the money to make acquisitions if he chose to. So next up, Microsoft Ignite showcases the first Project Cortex AI tool for SharePoint. There's lots of brands, there's lots of words here, but the importance of this is the this content management tool, it's a new tool, learns to extract important or relevant semantic information from documents for use in workflows or enforcing policies. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff down here, but essentially what they're trying to do is uh, give a, a buyer an ability to create a RFP or request for proposal from data as opposed to what happens typically. Again, I'll give you a clear example here. What we used to do, uh, hopefully I won't get sued for this or the company get sued for it because I don't know the legality of this, but we would give, and um, when we knew that a deal was going to happen and an organization had to go through a RFP, they had to go through a tender process, uh, legally or otherwise, before they could spend that cash. Um, Again, I used to sell to the NHS here, the government, so that was a legal government um, requirement for this to happen. In larger organizations, there's no legality to it, but they choose to get multiple quotes and, and RFP the heck out of individuals who are never going to get deals done um, just so they can justify the sales that they are going to make. So this tool, the goal of it is to automate this whole process because what we used to do was build a great relationship, get the sale basically done before the RFP was even raised. And then we just add a few features and benefits onto the RFP. We'd get them kind of edged in there that we knew our competitors wouldn't be able to cope with. So if our, if our, we're selling cameras here, right? If our cameras are 4K uh, interlaced and our competitors are 4K progressive, the way that the, it, it projects and scans the image, then we would put in the interlaced version into the RFP. The competitor couldn't compete with it, even though the end result is exactly the same. But that one thing would mean that a box could be ticked and procurement could very comfortably and easily spend their money with us. So this is looking like they're trying to put the end to this. It also could be used to filter automatically RFPs. It could be used to filter individuals who don't meet requirements. It could be used to on the expense side of things. So I don't know how many of this week in sales listeners are field salespeople. Probably not money at the moment uh, with the pandemic and the, the lack of ability to knock on doors, right? But I know with a company car, it was a pain in the ass to do my expenses. And hopefully some of this can be automated by AI. And that source is CIO.com. Next, I had a message from, uh, I won't call you out just in case uh, you don't want to be named, but a product manager over at Salesforce. Because we've been talking a lot about Gong recently. We've been talking a lot about um, Salesforce coming in and just wiping out some of these startups with the um, uh, voice recognition and, and, and contextual feedback to salespeople on sales calls. And he sent me a message that sent me to a link over at salesforceben.com. And Salesforce has announced Einstein call coaching for video. They've got it for audio and it looks like they're doing some really cool stuff there. And this is a great opportunity for me to just mention if you've got any uh, tips, if there's anything that you want covering on this week in sales, drop either Victor or myself a message on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way to get hold of us. Or you can email me directly, will at salesman.com. Org, and we will cover it, whether it's a, you've got some PR news that you want us to take a look at, but I will say it's probably best if you want to be included that you just include a couple of paragraphs that isn't marketing PR spiel and, uh, and you get real with us of what's really going on 
that's more likely to be included in the show. But yeah, thank you, Senior Product Manager over at Salesforce for that link. We appreciate it. Next up, we've got a post from rollzo.com, R-O-L-Z-O.com. It's entitled, The Future of Traveling is Immersive. Now, this article is talking about uh, tourism, going different places, using VR goggles, engaging with uh, sights and sounds and tourist attractions in VR. But I thought this was really fascinating because if we can do this to a high enough standard uh, that someone would not travel to Paris to see the Eiffel Tower because they can do it in VR in 99% accuracy. And I think there's at least two or three films, mainly starring uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and and people of that era of where this is going to demonstrate it as, as future technology. But if we can do virtual tours um, to, this article talks about, use it to increase hotel bookings rather than just seeing pictures. You can walk into a hotel. Um, Google Maps do this in some places where you can kind of click and move around. But if you can do this fully interactively, digitally, this has massive implications for the sales process because, well, well, I guess there's two elements to this. One, the, the most basic thing, sales demos become a completely different experience. If you can, even if you're just selling a software product, if you can virtually sit next to someone and talk them through the product that you're going and point at things on the screen and engage with them and see their body language and see whether they're, they're interested in this, that will change demos forever. But having said that, and as I was, I was, I was processing that in my head, the other side of this is that... If we can do all this virtually and this technology exists and again, it's ubiquitous and everyone has a virtual headset, even if when you go to the office, that's the only time that you put it on. It belongs to the company that you work for as opposed to something like an iPhone, which everyone has. Well, then there, there isn't going to be products where you sit and look at a screen because the screen will be augmented reality in front of you. It just changes absolutely everything. Maybe some of this can then be automated and do you need a salesperson when the likes of of gong.io and salesforce and i'm sure hubspot are on the case with this as well when these epic organizations pull in so much conversational data why don't you just create an avatar that sells if software can tell you you should be doing this you said this word you did discovery too hard you're talking about the competition you mentioned price too early if software can tell you all of these things and they can essentially learn and build a database of what to do and what not to do in real time with a potential customer. Maybe we don't need salespeople for a lot of these, um, I don't want to say lower level sales roles, but sales roles where you're essentially doing customer service. Maybe a lot of these can just be disregarded. Now, there's a human element to this of, do I want to speak to a human to make a large purchase? Uh, And the data from the top of the show shows that 70% of people Maybe they want to speak with a person, but they don't need to see you. It can all be done digitally. So what's to stop the software companies making some kind of avatar that sells on your behalf? We've almost got it at the moment with companies like Drift who can use chatbox automation that you know it's not real, but because it's contextual, it knows what page that you're sat on, it knows what pages you've engaged with before, it can build essentially a tree of content and and data and knowledge so that you feel like you're getting a real interactive experience with all of this. Again, what's to stop a software company making an avatar that can do a lot of this selling, probably better than someone who is untrained, at least at first. Um, I think that's perhaps even a scary proposition for B2B salespeople. And with that, let's wrap up this episode of This Week in Sales with a audience question. So here we have a question from Oscar. I think it's pronounced Winks or Willinks. He says, 
I've been working in sales for about five years. I make around $9,000 a month. My commission is uncapped, but I'm only in the middle of the leaderboard of my organization. Yes, I hit my target every quarter without fail. I have absolutely zero ambition to climb the corporate ladder or put in any more time or energy into my job. I have a great work-life balance. I live in a, I live comfortably on this $9,000 a month. And he wants to keep doing this until he stops working. He says, my issue is my sales manager fights me on being complacent. And she's always trying to push to get more out of me. How do I explain that I'm really happy where I am? Okay, so there are a number of, uh, if we go to like first principles to answer this question. One of the first principles about sales, sales targets, revenue generation, even businesses that are of a certain size, revenue has to go up every year. Now, there's real reasons for this, right? Inflation, 5% every year, your whatever you brought in last year is worth less, 5% less than what it is this year. So targets are always going to go up. Companies need to grow. If it's a public company, they need more profits. Otherwise, they are going to just get hammered by the, the, the market and people who analyze the market, and you're going to end up with less funding and the business will die. Businesses that aren't moving forward typically die off. Now, if it's a smaller company, um, one might call it a lifestyle business, a business of anywhere from 11 to, say, 28, 29 people, like 30 individuals in an organization. That's typically when things are forced to grow quarter on quarter if they are to stay afloat. If it is a small business, a lifestyle business, then you can go to your boss and say, hey, I'm profitable. You spend X dollars on me each week or each month or each year, and I generate X dollars uh, more than that. And as long as there is a positive differential and you're not a pain in the arse, you're not causing loads of hassle, you're probably going to be just fine. But if you're beyond that 30 employees mark within the organization, it's a difficult conversation to have. I would say, genuinely now, in all seriousness, as long as you can keep your head down, as long as you give good ideas and you give feedback and you look like you're trying really hard, even if... Um, you're only just meeting the obligations, even though you hit, I assume you're hitting target to earn that kind of uh, uh, that kind of salary each month and bonus each month. Then just get your head down, just plod along. This is one of the reasons um, I like I like sales as a career for people because it gives you these kind of options. Say perhaps you wanted to buy a new house, maybe your circumstances change in a few years from now, and you do want to buy a new house. Well, then you can get your head down and everything changes. If you maybe you don't want to let off the gas any more than where you are because you're already worrying about, <laughs> you're posing this question to uh, me and, and Victor. Unfortunately, obviously Victor isn't here to answer it. But perhaps you are asking that question because you're just not interested in the role. And that's fine. I've had sales jobs where I haven't really cared. But I was motivated by what the income could get me as opposed to the job itself. And that worked uh, fine as well. But I think it's going to be very difficult. It doesn't say how old you are. It doesn't say how many years you've got left in your career. But if you've got 10, 20, 30 years left in your selling career and you want to stay at that one company, that's going to be difficult in its own right. But if that's the goal, you're probably better off getting into some kind of management position where you're not reliant on sales quotas uh, fluctuate or you're not affected by sales quotas fluctuating. You're not, uh, maybe go to a sales training role if that's what you want. If you really love the company and you want to stay there. I feel like though, you're fighting a losing battle here. Sales quotas will always go up. They will always be dynamic. If everyone else in your team steps up a level and you stay behind, then you're at the bottom of the leaderboard in an instant. There's lots of things that you can't control. And so it's very difficult to just tread water in sales. As I say on the Salesman Podcast all the time, 
you need to go into sales with a mindset of get in, earn the money, and perhaps get out. And so there we go. I think that is the most, uh, the main uh, headlines of the topics this week. Again, um, apologies for Victor not being here. Hopefully he's back next week and his house hasn't collapsed on his head and killed him. That would be very unfortunate now that I'm making jokes about it on the show. And with that, I hope you enjoyed this week in sales. If you've got questions that you'd like to, us to answer on the show, drop us, Victor or I, an email or a message on LinkedIn. If you've got any news that you'd like us to cover, drop us a message. And with that, I'll see you this time next week on This Week in Sales.